Thanks to everyone who has participated this morning and sent in contributions for reading and for prayer, uh, Pastor Samuel and Jin and the whole family, uh, for your service to this congregation, your love for this congregation. Uh, it shows in so many ways. Thanks to everyone for doing that. Well, we want to thrive, not just survive, during times of disruption. And so we've been looking at lessons from the exiles. The exiles are the people in the Old Testament who were taken from uh, Jerusalem through to Babylon at first by King Nebuchadnezzar. And that happened just around the destruction of Solomon's temple, and that was about 587 before Christ. And so that's the event uh, that started this whole group of people moving over into modern-day Iraq and even modern-day Iran. And uh, people, Jewish people of Jewish heritage are still there to this day because of that. And there's a lot of great things actually came out of that period of exile. A lot of things that, that uh, even influence us today. Uh, the whole synagogue system was developed during that period of exile. Because they didn't have the temple, they found a way to gather around the law. And so teachers, rabbis came to prominence during that time. And that's very important for the time of Jesus, but also for the way that we structure our services today. So we are uh, children of the exile uh, in that sense. But also there's a number of other uh, innovations in language. There's the um, uh, different writings and scriptures that came out during that time period that have survived and improved the lives of many people since then. So exile, the Jewish population, many of them thrived during that time and actually uh, increased in number and actually managed to innovate in many different ways. And so we thought it might be a good idea to learn some of the lessons that they learned during this time of major disruption. So here are some of the lessons we've been learning so far. From Jeremiah, and remember Jeremiah is the prophet that remained behind in Jerusalem. He wrote a letter to the exiles, and in that letter, his advice was, bless others. Seek the well-being of the city to which God has taken you. Seek the prosperity of the people around you. Because as they prosper, you too will prosper. And so that's lesson number one for us. Bless others during times of disruption. Lesson number two, we looked at Daniel. And Daniel was uh, the prophet. He was taken at a very early age from Jerusalem through into Babylon. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that whole story. Um, they were uh, young men of faith. And their lesson is do not compromise. Don't let your faith slide during times of disruption. It's so, it would be so easy for Daniel and his friends just to say, well, no one knows us here. I mean, we could get away with all kinds of things. I'm sure some of us do that when maybe we go on holiday and we don't have to behave as well because we think, no one knows my name. This isn't going to get back to me. Sometimes it does. Uh, but Daniel and his friends refused to compromise. And because of that, they were exalted to very high positions within the kingdom. Well, then we turn to Ezekiel. And if you remember, poor Ezekiel, he was being trained to be a priest, but he was uh, taken through in captivity to Babylon. He's sitting by the river on his 30th birthday when he should have been launched into the priesthood. And instead, he's seeing a strange vision. And we discover in that strange vision, it's actually a vision of the glory of God. And Ezekiel reminds us, in times of disruption, always seek God's glory. 
What a great question for us to ask. In times of disruption personally in our lives or in times of disruption uh, in society, to ask the question, how do I glorify God in this situation? How do I reveal something of his holiness, his love, his justice, his mercy, something of his character to others in this situation? The, the amazing thing for Ezekiel is not only did he seek God's glory, but he discovers God's glory in unexpected places. And that's, I think, something we need to be open to during times of disruption. Uh, he, he looked across the river and there was God's glory when it should have been in the temple. And he said, what is God's glory doing here? I hope we have many of those occasions during times of disruption. Okay, and then we got to Nehemiah last week. And Nehemiah is on the other side of the exile. He's almost 100 years past the time when they were taken in, into captivity. And now people are beginning to return from exile. Nehemiah, he teaches us to pray first and act second. I mean, pray always, but pray first. And that's a lesson from Nehemiah that's uh, applicable to us during this time. So today, we are going to look at one last character, and that is Esther. And like Nehemiah, because they were very close in the time period, Esther and the story of Esther occurs about 100 years after that first wave of captivity coming out of Jerusalem to Babylon. And Esther, the story is fascinating. It's riveting. It's carefully crafted as a narrative. So go home and read it. But here's the thing. Here's the challenge that I want to give to us as adults today. Most of us know Esther in the Sunday school version of the story. And so here's a little warning as we get into the story of Esther. We discover a whole lot of stuff that we didn't expect. If you've never read Esther since Sunday school when you're a kid, you will be shocked with some of the stuff that we find in there. Um, because there's a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll that we find in this whole story. There's actually a lot of violence. There's a lot of kind of moral ambiguity within the story. Uh, to the point where even Martin Luther did not like Esther and uh, felt that it maybe shouldn't have been included in the canon of Scripture. So there's a lot of controversy around this. The Sunday school version goes something like this. And feel free to keep telling your kids this because it gets the general arc of the story. As adults, you need to go deeper. But the Sunday school version goes like this. Young Esther wins a beauty pageant, becomes queen, and saves her people. Right? Is that familiar? That might be familiar to you, that kind of arc of the story. But we're called as adults to kind of face the difficult truth of Scripture. And what we discover as we read Esther is that Esther actually faced a very painful and difficult life. There is brokenness and sin all throughout this story, and it impacts Esther especially. I mean, Esther, first of all, was born in captivity. She is also an orphan. She loses her mother and father at a very young age. And so she's raised by a relative, an older cousin, Mordecai, who takes her in and raises her. But then um, Esther lives as a female in a hostile culture. She's a foreigner still. And so she has that to wrestle with as well. But then to make matters worse, she is scooped up by a powerful king and brought into his harem. Now, the king was King Xerxes. 
I know if you read through Esther, you get a slightly different name. It's a different spelling, but historically, it is King Xerxes. And King Xerxes was a piece of work. I mean, this guy was powerful. His actual title was this, King of Kings. Does that sound familiar to anybody? That was Xerxes. That's what he preferred to be called, the King of Kings. Uh, Xerxes is actually the uh, Persian king who conquered, helped to conquer areas right into Greece. And if you've ever watched the movie, The 300, which this is not a recommendation, but in the movie, The 300, the Persian king who comes and uh, obliterates the uh, Spartan contingent of 300, that's Xerxes. That's the guy. Now it's a horrible portrayal of who he is, but that's the time period we're talking about. That's the king we're talking about. Uh, Xerxes was so full of himself and so full of power that one time when he was moving into Greece to conquer part of the land, he actually formed these pontoon bridges. So a bunch of boats together with uh, planks over top in order to move his army and supplies across. But the first time he tried it, uh, the wind and the wave picked up and destroyed his pontoon bridges. Now here's what Xerxes did. He was so angry that he commanded his men to take long chains to go into the sea and whip the sea as punishment for disobeying him. And that's how kind of a, a megalomaniac he was. And it turns out that his next attempt to build the pontoon bridges actually worked. So who is this that tames the wind and the sea, this king of kings, Xerxes? You see the setup here? And so that's the guy that we're dealing with. That's the guy that we're talking about. Now Xerxes, he actually in Esther 1 and 2, he holds a 180-day party. Basically, he wants to show off all his power. He wants to show off his toys, his military strength, all his valuables. And at the end of that 180 days, he holds a seven-day feast for everyone in the kingdom. And at the end of that feast, He's looking around his kingdom and thinking, is there anything I haven't shown off? I just want to show that I have power over everything. I am the king of kings. And he remembers his wife, his queen, Vashti. She's beautiful. And I'm going to ask her to come out and parade in front of the men wearing only her crown or something like that. It was kind of a horrible ask. And Vashti refused. Good for her. She said, no, I'm not going to be an object of these crazy men who have been drinking for all of these days, and I am not going to be paraded about. So Xerxes, and you can read it in Esther 1 and 2, bans Vashti, and now he needs a new queen. That's where Esther comes in. In order to get the new queen, what does Xerxes do? He rounds up the most beautiful young women, young virgins, that he can find in his kingdom. And in that scoop, Esther is included and brought in. But here's where we have to be very clear about the story. Esther does not enter a beauty pageant. Esther doesn't willingly enter some competition. And the text makes it abundantly clear what happens here. And it's important for us to get this. In chapter 2 and verse 12, it says this, before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments. And then later on it says, that evening 
she was taken to the king's private room, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's concubines lived. Now let that sink in for a minute because these girls were 12 to 14, and they're being brought in and groomed to be sex slaves for the king. That's how dark this, this chapter in Esther's life is. Not only is she a foreigner in a foreign land, she is not only in exile, she is not only an orphan, but now she's being groomed as a sex slave for the most powerful man in the world. That's the position that Esther finds herself in. Now it says later on in that passage, she would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. That's the sickness that's happening in this passage that Xerxes is perpetrating. Think of all that Esther had lost. Just let that sink in this, this morning. She had lost her parents and her family. She had lost her community because as soon as she was brought into the palace, she was cut off from anyone that she knew. She lost her dignity and her virginity. She lost her freedom and she lost her future because every single one of those girls, when they were brought into Xerxes, they would never be able to be with another man again or even be seen sometimes by another man. That's the loss we're dealing with that Esther is dealing with in this passage. So Esther wasn't a beauty queen. Sorry to break it to you that way. But I think by spending a moment focusing on Esther as an individual and addressing the very real and horrible things that this woman of God had to endure, we are able to more clearly see her character and her courage and God's redemptive love at work in spite of the sins of man. And that's part of the message of Esther. Esther's a very curious book because throughout the whole story of Esther, God's name is not mentioned and he is not referred to directly. And yet God is present. His fingerprint is through the story as we read it from beginning to end. The story is full of moral ambiguity, but somehow in spite of the sin of humanity and the brokenness of human systems, God preserves his people and his will is still accomplished. And that's part of the mystery in the story of Esther. Well, today I want to look briefly at that critical point in chapter 4 uh, that was read to us. Uh, just before this, Haman, sort of the, the evil character in the story, Haman has plotted to kill the Jews. Mordecai, this is Esther's uh, older cousin who raised her, manages to get a message to Esther. And he says, basically, you need to use your position. Use the opportunity that you have to speak to the king to save your people. But Esther is reluctant. How dare she? How dare she be reluctant to approach the king? But can we understand now why she might have been reluctant? This was a, a man that was drunk with his own power. And she couldn't dare just walk up and announce who she was and ask him to save her people. So she sends word back to Mordecai, saying, I, I can't do this. This is forbidden by law. But listen to Mordecai's response, and this is the main text that I would like us to take away uh, with us from this message. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, 
deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. So Mordecai doesn't, doesn't uh, sympathize with Esther in any way. It's interesting. He, he, like a father figure, he scolds Esther and says, look, you are here for a purpose and a reason. And he goes on specifically to say that. You and your relatives will die, but who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. For such a time as this. That's the key in the book of Esther. Well, this critical point has a three-stage movement, and I want us to consider that together this morning. The first stage for Esther is obscurity. Esther is hidden. She hides her true identity as a Jew in the palace. The king doesn't know this. She is hidden. And actually, her name meaning, her name is actually Persian. Esther Ishtar means a star. But when you write it out in Hebrew, the root of that word means hidden away or I will hide. And so just as the mention of God is hidden from the reader of the book, so Esther is hiding her true identity. That's how this passage starts out in obscurity. The second uh, critical stage is obligation. Obligation is next. In, in the face of her reluctance, Mordecai essentially scolds her about her selfish attitude and impresses on her a certain moral obligation to act on behalf of her people. And we're going to talk more about obligation in a minute. But then it moves from obscurity to obligation and then to obedience. So much of this story is about obedience. Who to obey, who not to obey, who are we loyal to in our heart, who do we not give loyalty to in our heart. And so much of that is part of Esther. So obedience, Esther responds to this challenge with obedience. She submits herself to the obligation out of love for her people while resigning herself to the real possibility of death. She says, if I die, I die. In this way, and this is important to get, Esther is a shadow of Jesus. She's a precursor. She's a type of Jesus. Jesus, who was born in obscurity. Jesus, who fulfilled his earthly obligations under the law. And then Jesus, who became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And just as Esther ultimately saves her people through her sacrifice, so Jesus saves us all through his. And so that's what we're meant to get through this story, looking back through the lens of the New Testament. So in the end, Esther is victorious. The Jews are spared. Their enemies suffer. That's another troubling part of the book toward the end. And then they celebrate. The Jewish people celebrate to this day through the Feast of Purim. And you can look that up and explore that as well. Well, what's the lesson here? What are we meant to take away uh, from this lesson this morning? How do we thrive in times of disruption according to Esther? Well, here's the simple truth. And it doesn't sound too exciting at first, but stay with me. We face our obligations. We face the obligations that are right in front of us because opportunity knocks on the door of obedience. Opportunity knocks on the door 
of obedience. Esther's actions were a selfless act of love on behalf of her people. She obeyed her conscience. She obeyed Mordecai. But more importantly, she obeyed the obligation of love. Now, I don't know if you've ever used those two words in the same sentence together, obligation and love, because it doesn't sound right to us. Obligation is is something that is a burden. It's something kind of that we don't want to do, but we do it anyway. Um, Did you go to Doug's party? Well, we did because we felt obligated. Right, Doug? No, that's not true for Doug. He's not here and I'm still bugging him. Uh, Did you call your sister? Well, I did because I felt obligated to do so. And did you donate to the church? Well, yes, because we feel obligated to do so. Obligation feels um, bad. It, It feels kind of like a burden, something that you don't want to do. It feels like a chore. But the core meaning of obligation might surprise us. Obligation, according to the dictionary, it means a sense of duty. It means being morally or legally bound to something. But it also means a debt of gratitude for a service or favor. This was Esther. She didn't want to do this. She, this was a burden to her. And yet she had a kind of debt of gratitude for the favor that had been shown to her through Mordecai but she also was bound to her people in love. And that moral, legally bound to them in that sense, propelled her to face her obligation. Well, it might surprise you, but in the New Testament, we are told that we are all, if we are followers of Jesus today, obligated to love. I don't know if you've thought of that before, but in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, it says this, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Love God, love your neighbor. That's how we face our obligation to love. It's an obligation. Esther was in the right place at the right time with the right heart. And instead of focusing on all that she had lost, she focused on the obligation right in front of her, trusting that God would preserve her. But if she died, she died. And God honored her obedience, and then her people were saved. So here's the questions I have for us this morning. Where has God placed you? What is God calling you to do in that place? What obligation has God placed directly in your path that you need to take care of during this time of disruption? Whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's service or work-related, God has placed something right in front of us. It might be small, it might be large, but it's right here. Sometimes these times of disruption are actually good for us, I was talking to Brenda in the office this week and we're saying how sometimes not being able to plan five months in advance is a bit of a relief because all we can deal with in times of disruption is what's directly in front of us. And that's all that God is asking us to do. What has he placed directly in front of us that we need to pay attention to and that we're obligated to do out of a sense of love because of love for God and love for our neighbors. 
Well, the exiles, they thrived during their time in exile. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. Because they learned to bless others, they learned not to compromise their faith. They learned to seek God's glory. They learned to pray first and act later. And they learned to meet the obligations out of love, the obligations that were placed right in front of them, and they thrive. And that's how we will thrive during times of disruption. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've placed us all here for our purpose and for this time, for your purposes. Help us to be attentive to what you've placed right in front of us as individuals, as a congregation, so that we can do it well, do it to your glory, and do it as an act of love and an act of gratitude for all that you've done for us. Thank you for Esther this morning for her example of faithfulness. We pray that we also might go down in history as those who met the obligations that you put in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.